The interesting is you miss an entire world power in between. You turn one page in your Bible and you turn massive times of world history. It's, it's amazing to think about. The trade language. Someone said it earlier. It's Greek. So now, they're, through Hellenization, through the, the rampant expanse of Alexander the Great, Greek is spoken in the known world at that time very regularly, and it would have been used as a common trade language, which we know as we get into the New Testament and the fullness of time, that really aided in the spread of the gospel and the spread of the Bible and the writing of the Bible. Travel. It was, it was, it was better. I don't know if we could still say it would have been a little worse than Pennsylvania times with potholes, but, <laughs> but it would have been, it would have been a little bit better in the sense of there were a lot more roads, a lot of better type of roads built throughout, throughout the empire. So that became a little bit easier. The religious leaders by the New Testament, Jeremy, Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those, those individuals are becoming the religious leaders. They're still the high priests. There's still the, the priestly aspect, but the ones who've become the, the powerhouse by New Testament times, that's, that's going to be your, your Pharisees, your Sadducees, your scribes. And what's, what's interesting is why some of that happens. If you go back and do some of the history, you look into, uh, it's not obviously in our Bible because it's not inspired, but if you read like First, Second Maccabees and you start reading about the Maccabean revolt and who comes out of that and why they why they revolted against the, the, the rulers of that day because they, they wanted their freedom. They did not want to be involved in all the things that were happening. And, and we would have identified with a lot of the reasons that they revolted. And who came out of that was actually the group known as the Pharisees. And they were a loved, loved people. And that plays into what happens in the book of Mark and actually through Jesus' time is that you have this group of individuals who... I mean, you consider them basically like the pastors of Israel. They were, they were loved by the people, and they loved their people. And they protected their people, and their people protected them. And now you get this new upstart guy who's going to come in and start doing these miracles and start stealing people away from us, and you think he's living in heresy. What are you going to do? There's a reason they hated him and didn't like him. Israel's leaders, by this point now, who's in charge in Israel? Rome, and so the king would be... Herod. So you, you go, you have this big transition that takes place, but what's interesting as, is that you do that in a, a turn or two of the pages. You, you flip the pages and you go from one type of world system to a completely other type of world system. One trade language to a completely different trade language. And, and things changed, uh, not rapidly, because it was over 400 years. What's interesting is in that, that turn, turn of the page, those 400 years, that's actually longer time than Israel was a kingdom back in the Old Testament. It's interesting how, how long of a period that was. What's interesting is when you get to the literal and the literary, and I'll talk about that in a second here, in Chronicles and then in Malachi. Chronicles is actually chronologically, no pun intended, but chronologically, it is the end, it's the last things written in the Old Testament. And it, it says here, look, look how the Old Testament ends. It says, the Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord uh, God of heaven has given me all kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with you. Let him go up. 
And that is, that is literally how the Old Testament ends. And there's this anticipation for the finalization and the fullness of the temple that is going to be coming. So there, for the next, the next years, people are looking forward to the temple. Well, we know historically the temple ends up being established and it's built. And, and Herod's temple is finally finished up. By the time Jesus is going to come on the scene, that temple is, is fully functioning. What's interesting is the literary end of the Old Testament, when it was placed uh, in a literary order, we have Malachi put at the end. Now, Malachi 3.1, he, uh, Malachi, the, the Italian prophet, is my, one, of my, my, one of my prophets, and the prophet and professors in seminary ruined it for me. He, he calls this Malachi, the Italian prophet. And to this day, I can't get it out of my head. I'm like, come on. But he says, behold, I'm sending my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of his covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then Malachi is going to finish it, the very last two verses. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their father to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the lamb with a decree of utter destruction. So that is how the, the Old Testament ends with the, the longing for the temple. The temple's going to be built during that intertestamental uh, period. And then the next thing that, that the Jews are looking for is this one who's going to come in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. And when this person is to come, Jews were to be thinking, whoa, whoa wait a second, Messiah is coming. Well, let's look at, look at Mark. Look how Mark now starts his, his, uh, his gospel. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. Malachi 3.1 The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight his path. You have these, all these references. Mark is taking us right back to say, Hey, you, you know how, what we've been always studying and thinking about in the end? Guess what? It's here. And so Mark's going Mark's to jump in. Now, when we talk about the, the 400 years of silence, jumping past that, we talk to the, the Gospels. And when we look at the Gospels, the Gospels are written to specific audiences, though it's, then, um, it's out then to all of us. It's not just for this specific group. But when they wrote, they wrote to a target group. So Matthew, Matthew wrote to the Jewish people. And to the deeply religious. In fact, when you go through Matthew, he's very careful even in his choice of words about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and when he's using different things because he knows who he's speaking to and he knows which audience he's talking, talking about. Luke writes to the Greeks. He's very specific, knowing that the Greek culture loved culture and beauty and ideas. Luke takes extra time to give it vivid details in his stories. And he, he's long. He's, there's a reason his gospel is so long. And always every commentator he said is two volumes because there's so much packed into the physician's commentary on the gospel. John is going to write to the entire world. He, he's looking and saying, everybody needs this gospel. We're going to write to all. And so he writes that way. Well, Mark is one that writes to the Romans. And as we look at how Mark writes, he, he's understanding that the Roman culture, they are concerned with leadership and action. They want things to happen and they want to see somebody that's in control, has power, has authority in what he's doing. 
So as you think about it, as you're going through the Gospel of Mark, you're going to catch on little things like, he spoke as one who has authority. We've never heard authority like this guy. He is, he, he's leading the people. He's going from here to there. It's a, it's a Gospel of action. And, and Mark is unique in that way. He's, he doesn't, he doesn't um, some, of you, some of you would very much write the Gospel of Mark because you're right to the point. Here it is. And so in the Gospel of Mark, it has the least amount of teaching, the teachings of Jesus. There's, there's not a lot that occurs. There, there obviously is teachings of Jesus, but not like Matthew where you get five long discourses or where you get Luke in a lot of parables. Uh, you, you, you get a lot there. It has the least parables of Jesus. Uh, they, he has less, less parables than any other, any other gospel. But what's interesting is miracles, they abound. In fact, there's, there's controversy over who has the most, but Mark has 20 of the 37 recorded major miracles of Jesus. Luke has 20, 21, but he sort of smushes one together. But in the, when you look at the volumes that Luke wrote in comparison to how little Mark wrote, Mark writes 16 chapters and he has 20 of the 37 miracles. I mean, he is about action. He is about seeing something happen that it's going gonna, it's gonna to go. He uses the word immediately. 41 different times throughout the book. He is not about, let's just sit and ponder. Let's sit and reflect. No, Mark is like, Jesus did this and this happened. Then Jesus did this and this happened. Immediately he went there. And straightway he went there. And immediately while he was doing this, he did that. And immediately he did that. And it would be like, it would be like listening to the continued story from pastor. Like it just, he's got one thing after another after another. And you're like, how does he keep it up? That's how Mark would, would speak. And he, that's how he wrote in the book. So it's a gospel of action. It's a gospel of service. It highlights Jesus's serving attitude that he's looking to minister to people. In fact, chapters one through eight, most of those miracles, 17 of those 20 miracles that he records are in those first eight chapters. He is looking to show Jesus's love, his concern, his action and his service toward other people. In fact, it'll highlight in the gospel that he's come not to, to be ministered to, but to minister unto others to serve other individuals. Uh, the overriding theme of Mark is to show that Jesus came to serve. He came to give his life and service to mankind. Uh, in fact, Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 35, even though it's a little bit after, but he's, he's highlighting uh, some of what his, his purpose is. Uh, he says, he sat down, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last and servant of all. And then in chapter 10, verse 44 and 45, which are often considered the key verses of Mark, um, it says, And whosoever will be chief, chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And it's actually a really good transition verse where it looks and says, Hey, he came to minister, but now he's coming to give his life a ransom for all. And from that point on, actually from chapter 9 on, we're really moving toward the, the, the gospel of sacrifice. So the book breaks down very nicely in two halves. The first half looking at the, the ministry and the ministering dynamic to individuals. And the second half is movement toward the cross. Getting, getting to that point. And Mark is looking and saying, hey Romans, he came to minister and to serve and he was a man of action, but he also was a man who did something with a great authority. He conquered death. He, he was put on the cross he was buried. He rose again. And so he moves on, moves in that perspective on the cross. Now, the first part of Mark here, it's going to deal with what we're going to talk about today, the way of the Lord. 
the, the way of the Lord is, is a very interesting phrase that he uses, and Mark is going to give us the major players right away. In fact, if you were to look in verses 1 and 9, obviously the major player, the major characters in the book, as we go through the book, you're going to see these major characters. Obviously, Jesus is going to be the one. The gospel of Jesus, according to Mark. The, the Jesus Christ has come, verse 9, is going to be where we're going to move into his baptism. It's interesting. You talk about immediacy. He don't, Mark, Mark does not even, he, he doesn't even mince words with Jesus was born. It's like, Luke takes, you know, two and three chapters. Matthew takes time to talk about the wise men who came. Mark's like, okay, let's talk about the gospel. He came, there's this guy who told about him, now Jesus is getting baptized. What happened to the other 30 years of his life? I mean, he doesn't even, he doesn't even deal with that. He just gets right into it. Uh, the next one, verses three and four, are going to deal to talk about John the Baptist. Actually, a few more than that. Uh, through verse eight is really going to get us through John the Baptist. But John the Baptist is a key player, though he's not a major player for all the time. In fact, he's only got two speaking parts in the entire, in the entire drama. But he is a, he's a key player because he's that forerunner, forerunner to, to Jesus Christ. Verse 13, you're introduced to Satan. Obviously, you're going to need the, the, the antagonist and the protagonist. And so here comes, here comes the bad guy. Satan is coming in, and he's going to apply pressure in lots of different ways. And we see that with the, the temptations of Jesus. Again, you, when you get to that, you're going to see. You're going to, you're going to look, and you're going to go, well, why didn't Mark talk about how Jesus defended the temptations with the gospel or with the word of God like Matthew did? That's not Mark's intent. Mark's intent is to get you moving through and get, getting you to see that Jesus was a man of action. That he didn't just sit idly by in a pew and just say, I took it all in and I meditated and cogitated and I knew a lot. He was a man who was involved and was about doing. Uh, he, verses 16 and following, which is a really interesting dynamic as we get to the end here today. His disciples, you start getting Andrew and James and John, and then you're going to get Matthew involved in the mix and as the, as the gospel works on. But his disciples become a key player. And then notice down in verse 28 of chapter 1. It says, And immediately after, after Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit out of the individual in verses 21 and following, verse 28 says, Immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. So there is this fame that starts to take place. And with fame comes crowd, and with crowds are people. So there are these individuals who begin to follow Jesus. They are the masses. But as the gospel of Mark works, you see that right there, very first chapter, there are masses that are following Jesus. But just because people follow Jesus does not mean that they are a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. I think we see that in our society ever more prevalent, where we have people who claim to be Christians, but they are not a follower of Jesus Christ. Or at least when you look at God's word and you say, this is what it says, and they do something totally opposite. So you're going to see, as you go through this book, you're going to see this massive group of followers be whittled down to, by the end of the book of Mark, you've got, you've got a bunch of people sitting in a room waiting and saying, what's next? Where are we going? And how's it going to happen? And we're not sure. Is this, is this really the guy? I mean, we put all our, our eggs in this basket. What's happening? And there are very few by the end. And it shows, that, it shows the same dynamics that we face in, in our lives. So we talk about the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is really interesting because it's not a phrase that we use, but at the same time, look how Paul used and talked about the way. He says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. 
so that if he found any who were of the way, that it, was a, it, was a, it was a title that was given to believers in the early church. In fact, in Mark uh, 10, I think it's verse 52. Um, yeah, Mark 10, verse 52. And Jesus said to him, Go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole. And immediately he received his fo- uh, sight and followed Jesus in the way. It was a term that was used to say we were going to follow this individual in his path, in his leading, in the way that he would go. And it was a, it was a term of derision used by Saul before, before he actually became a person of the way uh, and promoted it. He, uh, they followed after. So what do we learn from this, this, this passage here? Very easily through verses 1 through 8, we're going to learn that the way of the Lord is the plan of God. The way of the Lord is the plan of God. God had a purpose. God knew what was happening. At the end of the Old Testament, he says, hey, there is going to become one who's going to prepare my way. That the way of the Lord is going to be made straight. And then Mark starts off and says, prepare the way of the Lord. Here comes comes John. Isaiah 40 actually talks about the voice of one crying in the wilderness. What are they going to cry? Isaiah the prophet says he's going to cry, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And what is John going to do? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. He's, he's proclaiming what God's plan was all along, that there was going to be this one who was going to come. Malachi, again, three one says he will come and he will say, prepare the way of the Lord before me. So, so John is starting to fulfill, and being the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though he's in the New Testament, He's the last of the Old Testament prophets here proclaiming this out. John is going to look. And it's interesting how Kings talks about Elijah. Remember Malachi said that there's going to be this one who's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. Second Kings 1 says, what kind of man is this who comes to you and told you these words? So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. He said it is Elijah the Tishbite. And it talked about the way that Elijah was dressed, the way that Elijah would act. And notice in Mark, down in verse, verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair and girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. When the Jewish individuals would have seen the way that John was dressed, they would have seen the way that he was proclaiming boldness and repentance, they would have been brought back to the symbolism of the Old Testament prophets. They would have understood that there was something unique and special about what John was doing. So what do we know about John the Baptist? As we look through the passage, he was a man of the wilderness. He went out into, into the wilderness, and that's where he was located. He, didn't, he wasn't, wasn't the city guy. He was the, he was the mountain man. He was out there in the desert area. And we know that he's, he's staying out there. While he's out there, his ministry that he was performing is a ministry of baptism in the wilderness. And, and as we talk about that... Uh, and, Oh, that's weird. Uh, number three, he announced one who is greater than himself uh, was to come. So, so what, did, what did he do? He was the one who um, was man in the wilderness, performed the ministry of baptism, and then he announced one who is greater than himself was to come. So he's looking forward. He's not just looking at what he's doing. So the wilderness, what's interesting in, in that Old Testament perspective and in, even for, for those people living at that time, the Jews living at that time would have understood that this was the place where, where God would meet. He would reveal himself to people. He would t- uh, test them. He would save the people there. 
go back. Where, where does where do a lot of the covenant things and the dynamics happen? You know, I mean, Moses, Mount Sinai, where are, they, where are they wandering through? In a wilderness area. After the people rebel and they're going to be taught lessons for 40, for 40 years, where are they at? They're in a wilderness. Moses, when, he's, when God is going to come, he's out in the wilderness. The term of the wilderness comes up often in the Old Testament. And it's often that place where, where people would go and to get alone, to spend time in a deserted place. We'll see that in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus at times, he, he just needs that respite. He needs to get away from people. And he gets away from people and he goes to a desert place. Which, I mean, if we look and we would say, oh, what, what a terrible pastor Jesus would be to get away from people. But there's times that you know how it is. You want to get away. And that's, that's what happens. So they go, they go to the wilderness. John is out in the wilderness. He's going to preach. What's he going to preach? He's going to preach the baptism of repentance. Now, it gets, it, when, you, when you start reading it here, you start getting a little bit like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. What is John doing? Is he, is he preaching a different gospel than, than what Jesus is going to do or anything. Because, verse 4, the end says that he's going to preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So did John's baptism forgive sins? We know, we know that it doesn't do that. In fact, uh, the, the idea of repentance here is that idea of to change the mind. To, to have this sending away is the idea of remission. Uh, remission or forgiveness is the sending away. So as people would change their mind... There was a forgiveness of sins. Now, uh, one, James Brooks wrote this. He wrote, John's ministry was his baptism uh, or immersion of those who had repented of their sins, confessed them, as in verse 5, and as a result received forgiveness. The baptism symbolized the cleansing from sin that repentance affects. It's the same thing that happens in Acts chapter 2, where it talks about repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins or because of the remission of your sins. It's the same, same type of pattern that's, that's used here. So it's a, it's a symbolism that is showing this individual has repented, has turned, and is identifying with this new way, this new program that's taking place. So he's in the wilderness. He's going to preach the baptism of repentance. And then he's going to preach that the one is coming. And we know who that one is. We, we get the beauty of hindsight to look back and say, oh, it's Jesus. Jesus is going to be that one. But to them... They're still figuring that out. In fact, we know that John still wrestled with it because in, later on in chapter 6, he's going to be talking and he's going to send his disciples to Jesus and say, are, are you really the one? And Jesus is like, well, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm the one. So the message of John, what did he say? He's like, the one who is greater than I or the one who is more powerful than I am. And he is the one at the end of verse 8. He says, indeed, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost or the Spirit. He, he knows that the Spirit is coming, that the baptism of the Spirit, something greater is coming. So John is continually foreshadowing. He's pointing forward. He's saying, hey, this, this that is coming is great. And I'm here to, to proclaim that way, to prepare it, to get you to identify with the need uh, for repentance. What's interesting about the repentance dynamic is, notice down in verse 5. Uh, it says, And there went out to him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. He's, he's looking around. He's not looking. His, his message is you need to repent. The way that you are going, Israel, is such that you're not in a good way. 
You're going in the wrong direction. You need to change. Jerusalem, you need to change. Judea, you need to change. We as a nation, we need to change and we need to go in the right direction. We need to confess and repent of our sins. And then he says, what, what you need to do is to show that you've done that, come be baptized. To a Jew, the only people who needed to get baptized were the proselytes, those who were coming into Judaism, or those who had done something extremely heinous. Not the everyday normal, I'm already part of the fold. So for John to say, nope, this is the, you need to, Israel, all of you need to come and confess your sin. He's making a bold declaration to his nation and saying, you're living in sin. The direction you're going is not right. When we were back in the wilderness and we met with God and he made that covenant with us on Mount Sinai and he gave us the law, we're not living up to that. You need to repent. And as people are repenting and and yoking up and coming after and following the way, God is going to start preparing that process to, to go forward. David Garland wrote, the only thing that interests Mark in John's preaching is his announcement that one who is more powerful than he is is coming and that he will baptize him in the Spirit. John's, John's preaching isn't long because Mark is not at this point looking and saying, let's really get into John's message. He's just looking and saying, John is prepping the way. There's one coming who's greater. And, and, and let's be honest, who are you more excited to learn about? John the Baptist or Jesus? I mean, I know which way I end up. I mean, I like the fact that John's like the mountain guy who wants to go out in the wilderness. But I, I, I like to learn about Jesus. And so he, he goes in that direction. You know, we, we talk about symbols. You know, I can throw out those pictures. And with the, this week, you know, we, we have that, that memory that goes back. We think about the symbolism of 9-11 and things that happen. But the same thing would be true for those Jews as they looked at the prophet. As they looked at what he was eating, what he was dieting on, he was eating the locusts and the honey, and it wasn't this comfortable lifestyle, the call to repentance, the wilderness, the baptism. They would have looked at all of that and understood what was happening, that this was an Old Testament prophet coming to their nation and saying, hey, we're in a bad way. We need to fix it. And I I believe it's 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 a cry that we could be calling out today to our society, to our churches, to us as believers saying, are are we following the way? Are we prepared to do what is necessary to be following after and be a true follower of Jesus? Or are we just content with being part of that mass that just follows and claims Jesus? Or do we, do we, are we willing to put our nose to the grindstone, do the uncomfortable things? John can only announce his coming and try to prepare the hearts of the people so that they will be responsive when he arrives. That's what John the Baptist is doing. He is about proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ and preparing hearts, knowing that something greater is going to fix them, not just, not just him. So as I was looking through and reflecting and, and wrapping up here, the way of the Lord, the way of the Lord involves preparation. It's not, it's not something where it's just like, hey, okay, great. No, it involved the repentance. They had to be working on, following after the repentance of, of John, where he said, you know, prepare the repent. Uh, for the remission of repent, the baptism of repentance, there it is, for the remission of your sins. So he, he talks about confessing their sins in verse 5. It, would, it dealt with identification, that the individuals had to identify with this new way, this new perspective, this new thought. That's one of the reasons when Jesus gets baptized, it's not because it's not he needed the, the baptism to identify that he had gotten saved. Jesus didn't need to get saved. 
But Jesus was identifying with the way and with the plan that God had established and that John was proclaiming. So Jesus comes along and identifies with that. But it is a, it is a, the way of the Lord is something that we are to identify with. We are to say, hey, if this is the path, if we are to be people of the way, then we need to identify with him. That's how we prepare. We say, this is who Jesus is. He is the, the leader of the way. I need to follow. I need to prepare. I need to do my life like he would want. For some of us, it could be returning. Just like Israel had, and it has that idea of repentance. Israel was wandering away. They needed to return to the way, the path of the Lord. It involves posture. When we look at the the way of the Lord, comfortability, it's not always there. He lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts and honey. He wore a camel hair sash thing with his belt across the middle. And, you know, it, it can't be comfortable. But he wasn't about the comfortability and the niceties of life. He was about his mission to get the gospel out. Are we willing to become uncomfortable at times to share the gospel, to take a little bit of extra time? Maybe it might be a little bit less sleep because we're going we're gonna to do some ministry or we're going to spend some extra time in prayer. Or we're going to go without the food because we're going to fast in order to be praying for, for a minister, for someone to get saved. To look and to say, okay, it's not about just the comfortability and the comfort creatures of life. There are times that following the way, it's uncomfortable. It's an issue of purity. He's calling people to pure lives, to forgiveness, to have their sins forgiven, to to have them sent away. It's a posture of humility. Probably the most familiar verse about John is down in in verse 7 where he says, there's one coming after me, it's mightier than I, the latchet of whose shoes I am not even worthy to stoop down and unloose. We don't, we, we don't take that into consideration all the time. But I mean, if I, if I walked up to Barb and said, hey, take my shoe off, you know, and you'd look and go, really? You, you would, thanks, thanks, Barb, thanks so much. But we, we look at that and it's like, ugh. He's like, I'm not even worthy to do the most servant, menial task to this man. He's that amazing and that great. It was a posture of humility. And then it involves proclamation. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. There is one coming. We don't have to say there is one. Well, we can't say he's coming again. But we get the benefit of saying there is one who has come, and he has something that you need. That you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the one who, who is able to, to proclaim and to make, make his voice known. So you have in the, in the gospel here, it starts with John, but it quickly escalates to the disciples. And the disciples are the ones who are then to proclaim. And Jesus is involved in that. And the disciples, so that by the time you get to the end of the book, it's waiting with the disciples. And the next transition is into the book of Acts. And who's the one doing the proclamation? It's the disciples. Fast forward 2,000 years. Who is the voice of the way of the Lord? It's us. We're the voice. We are the ones who are to be making known the way of the Lord, to be proclaiming it, to taking that. Yes, we're not prophets, but we are heralding an amazing truth. The people need the Lord, and we need to, to make that. So when you look at your life, when you look at the way of the Lord in just those first eight verses, and we look at John, 
How's your preparation? How's your posture? How's your proclamation? And what areas do we need to fix? Maybe we can start even now as we have the opportunity to go to prayer to say, okay, our posture is going to be one of prayer. Rather than running out to get out right away, maybe we take the posture to say, I need to be praying for these people who are at neighborhood night. I need to be praying for the sportsman's supper coming up and the ladies' conference coming up. I need to be praying for the people in my neighborhood, the people that we know that need the gospel. I need to be taking the time to spend in prayer for those individuals who are hurting and need strength and are going through surgeries and medical things. But looking and saying, this is a time that we can prepare our hearts and our minds and we can go before the Lord and then we can look to the future to say, we're going to be the voice of the Lord because that's what we are. So we'll look forward to our continued study in the book of Mark. Pastor will pick up Lord willing next week uh, with the next part and we'll continue to go through. But let's go to prayer and let's spend that time together before the Lord.